0: T-bone is on the other side.
1: T-bone is on the other side. T-bone, brown cuts, on the other side. T-bone, brown cuts, podcast on, the T-bone, prime cuts podcast on the other side. T-bone. He
0: said to tone, originates, opinionates, G-bone, the
1: cheap originality of the week, prime cuts, podcast on the other side, T Bone Prime
0: Cuts, the talk space where musicians matter.
1: Welcome to T Bone's Prime Cuts on the Other Side, episode six. Our guest today: the legendary John Oates, half of the famed duo Dare Hall and John Oates, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Today we'll discuss his solo album, Live in Nashville, Oates Songfest seventy nine oh eight, Sack Squatch, Something That Doesn't Get Discussed Enough, John Oates the Guitarist, The Renewed Popularity of the Band, seeing them sell at huge arenas worldwide. Why no two of their songs sound alike? We'll share memories of my favorite Hall notes record, T-Bone Walk, We Are The World, Live Aid, George Harrison, and so much more. You'll have a great time today. Without further ado, here's John Oates. Well, welcome to T-Bone's Frank Betts on the other side. Our guest today is music legend, John Oates. John, how are you?
0: Mr. T-Bone, I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good, considering. Good.
1: Now we have a long working relationship. And as you know, I've had some health issues the last three years and haven't been able to keep up with all you're doing as much as I'd like to. But despite the pandemic, I know that you've stayed busy. And yeah. uh, can you tell us something about the live and national record that, that you put out with the Good Road Band? Sure.
0: Um, well, you know, I mean, you uh you know, interesting enough, before we even get into that, you know, I just have to say that um I can't believe that you you're uh, meeting you and uh, my Nashville experience go hand in hand, because we did meet basically uh, when I was uh, you know basically just getting my feet wet here in Nashville with the the Americana community. So it's always been a real you know good feeling for me to know that uh, you know you were you were part of that and you helped uh, pave the way for 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 my uh, entry into the nash vegas music community so anyway i'll just get that out of the way um well you know i've got uh, my with my solo work you know um over the years i've i've developed a, a kind of a community of musicians you know a lot of great session players uh who i've had you know the pleasure of working with and then little by little this this good road band kind of kind of formed you know uh one by one and uh it started with the you know with the some of the guys that i I knew uh, you know around town but they weren't really a band they were just their own individual players and um, when I was going to do the Arkansas album in 2017 late 17 I really wanted it to sound like a band I wanted to assemble a group together that was going to make the whole record together and you know and have a very coherent band sound so um, Guthrie Trapp uh, the lead guitar player is one of my good friends and you know, I just you know he's 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 just one of the greats. You know, he's a he's a very special special person. He's a monster guitar player. And um, Steve Mackey, I've been playing with for many many years uh, on bass. And uh, met met this guy Josh Day through some mutual friends. And Josh, uh, I love his uh, his. He started out as a really playing percussion for us because um, I didn't even know if I wanted a drum kit. Uh, but he's transitioned into the the full kit as well as percussion. And then uh, we got Russ Paul uh, to play pedal steel. And Russ Paul is um, just one of the most unique and innovative uh, pedal steel players you'll ever hear. Uh, He can play traditional, but uh, he really does some really out there stuff with uh, delays and cool effects that he's developed himself. And I wanted something above and beyond. And then, uh, then I found uh, I was, I was at music city roots one time and, with sarah gerose I, I heard this guy named nathaniel smith playing cello mm-hmm. and he just blew me away um I, he was so good and so uh, funky and and he wasn't like a classical cellist you know he he just had a swing that was really cool and i introduced myself um and i said man i'd love to play with you sometime and uh, you know it was one of those things where he just came over to the house and we just started playing it was magic so uh, you know i had brought him in and uh and then, you know, as as the secret weapon, you know, um, Sam Bush, who's really one of my best friends here in town, um, I asked him if he would be part of the album. And, uh, you know, he was gracious enough to say yes. And and whenever he could, he would play with us live. Um, so that was the genesis of the of the the Good Road Band. And um we had been playing on and off, you know, sometimes with Sam Bush, sometimes not. Sometimes we'd go out with a trio. Sometimes we'd go out with four pieces. Sometimes we'd go out with a full six pieces. And really, it depended on the show and, and people's availability. Um, and uh, after about two years of playing a whole bunch of shows, we were really tight. And uh, the show just kept getting better and better. And in the beginning of 2020, I know this is a long-winded story. Oh, so go, ahead, go ahead. You can stop me anytime. Yeah. <laughs> um, In the beginning of 2020, uh, I was getting ready to go uh, do a Hall and Oates tour. You know, we had uh, a 38 city tour planned with uh, Squeeze and KT Tunstall and it was going to start in February. And I thought, you know, man, I I've been working with the good road band in Nashville for, for over two years. And I wanted to capture that band. I wanted to capture them at their, at their height, basically at their peak, you know, when we were tight and when, you know, behind playing a whole bunch of shows and I didn't want to lose that, that, you know, I wanted to somehow record that. And uh, so on January, I believe it was January 9th, um, 2020, we uh, booked the station in, which is one of my favorite places to play, and um, we recorded it and uh, it turned out to be a great, great night with a lot of energy and it was real. The band was playing fantastic. And I thought, OK, man, this is cool. I got it. You know, I got it recorded and, you know, it's there for posterity, whatever that might be. And then, of course, uh, we started the tour with Hall of Notes. We did a warm up show and then we played Madison Square Garden, <laughs> sold it out and that was it. It was over. Uh, the rug, the COVID rug got pulled out from under us. And so there I was sitting there facing a year of nothing, you know, nothing going on. And I had this incredible recording in the can, you know, from the station in. And I didn't really know if I was going to put it out. But then I thought to myself, you know what? (laughs) Why wait? You know, let's put this out. And so that's what I did. I put it out digitally. And I'm glad I did, you know, uh, for people who want to hear what you know, what was happening at the station end at that, that night, It it's a really honest-to-goodness representation of a true live album. There is not one overdub, there is not oh. one fix, there's nothing. It's mixed. We did mix it, you know. I, yeah. I will say that we did did a
1: mix on it, but other than that, it is as real as it gets. I know this this just passed, and I didn't get to, to really talk about it before it happened, but how did the, you know, the Songfest 7908 come about and who came up with the idea to make it virtual? Well,
0: that was a that was also a product of COVID. <laughs> you yeah. know, a result of of de- trying to trying to make something happen during COVID. We over the summer we had gone out to Aspen, Colorado, where my wife and I, and son and I we lived for 25 years, uh, almost 20 25 years before moving to Nashville. While we were out there, the mayor of the town, who used to be my sound man, <laughs> <laughs> I know that's it. It's I'm a small afraid. town. What can I tell you? Um, he, we ran into him, uh, you know, on a beautiful summer day and we got to talking and he said, man, you know, when things get back to normal, he goes, be great if you would re- revive the 7908 Aspen Songwriters Festival, which you attended Yeah. I went Uh, to the first one. You went to the first one. That's right. And uh, we did three of them and it was one of my proudest moments and something I'll never forget and how amazing it was at the at the really legendary Wheeler Opera House in Aspen, Colorado. And, uh, you know, due to circumstances, it fell by the wayside. And when he said that to me uh, this past summer, I thought, hmm, you know what? That's something I would like to do again um so we we kind of i met with the people at the wheeler opera house and of course there was you know first thing they said is well we don't know when we're going to be able to have a live show and so this was probably july of sure. 2020 and they said well you know maybe by march of 21 we'll be able to have a live show right and i said well yeah sure maybe you know and let's uh, let's plan it so as the year went on we got closer to, to november december uh, and we realized there was no way that March was going to happen. Uh, that's when my wife and Amy and I just said, well, you know what? Let's not abandon this idea. Maybe we can make it virtual and let's see what we can do. And then, you know, we, uh, we started asking around and, and I just knew that if it was based on charity, a charitable component, that there, there would be a lot of response that people wanted it. I knew the music community wanted to help. And I think really in the end, what we did is we created this, uh, we created a platform for these great songwriters and musicians and artists to just give of themselves, you know, and do what they do naturally and try to uh, to do something good. We we found feedingamerica.com, uh, dot, dot org because it's a great organization. And we realized how important uh, food insecurity was and we partnered with them and little by little, we found a great video partner in Nugs TV and drive entertainment and things just fell into place. And, um, you know it was it was all done in the spirit of trying to help people and um when you do you know when you do something with uh with that motivation i think things things just seem you know the blessings just seem to fall out of the sky so i um, really fortunate to have this incredible roster of artists who signed on and the performances were great and we ended up um, we ended up with doing four hundred and fifty thousand meals wow so, um, it was fabulous. And, uh, for a streaming event that only streamed live once, um, from what I understand from talking to people who do this, it was a pretty, pretty great response.
1: Now, can people still donate to this or, or just, should they just go to the charity or how, how does that work? Well, they can, I mean,
0: you know, the, the, the URL that we created is, uh, I'm not sure if it's still there or not, but if, you know, if you want to. Uh, contribute to FeedingAmerica.org. you most certainly can yeah Um, they are one of the reasons we chose them is not only because they provide meals around the country in a nationwide network of food banks but they are so efficient they're almost 98 percent of the money that is generated goes to food and very low administrative costs which is unusual in in a charitable organization you know a lot of times the charity siphons off a lot of uh, the money off, off the top, you know. Um, so just being with an organization that really, you know, had their, uh, had their,
1: their, you know, they put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Right. Uh, you, you did, this did a lot to bring attention to the state of hunger in this country. I was amazed and shocked when I heard what you said about the one in six.
0: Now, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, uh, man, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And, you know, it has to do with, with everything. It, you know, it has to do with a lot of things. But COVID, of course, made it um, so much worse because people lost their jobs. And once they lost their jobs, and, of course, they can't put food on the table. So, yeah, a lot of people were really blown away by the stats. By when, when you know, you said $1 could feed, could create 10 meals. Wow. Um, and, you know, children, so many children not being able to eat. And so it was a re, it's a real national emergency and, and really a stain on uh, on America to have a, a country like ours where where people are going hungry.
1: As of the time I'm recording this podcast, the OatsFest URL at Feeding America is still good. So go to feedingamerica.org slash OatsFest. if by the time this is released, or the time you've heard it. If that URL is no longer any good, please go to feedingamerica.org and please donate. Thank you. To jump subjects a little bit here and talk about, you know, something else that you've done recently. Yeah. Uh tell us a little bit about uh sex squatch and the amazing <laughs> version of Maneater recording. That video is so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It is. It is. I'm really i really into it. Um well, OK, I
0: got to I got to give props to my wife, Amy, because she uh, she was a big part of the of this, the the uh, festival, you know, the song fest. Um, she co-produced it with me. And uh, when we were talking about how it, how to put this thing together, I was going to I was planning on hosting it and, uh, you know, <laughs> no diss to me, I guess. But she said, hey, you know, you need some help, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so we had discovered she had actually discovered Saksquatch uh, on on Instagram. And we were following him and we just thought he was so great and and everyone loved him. Uh, And we reached out to him and um, ended up meeting, talking to his manager and all this stuff. And and, uh, Amy said, why don't you ask him to co-host with you? And so we did. And uh, then, you know, I kind of came up with this idea that I would write the script because obviously we were not together. He. You know, sasquatch lives in the woods somewhere, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm here in Nashville. So um, I wrote a script uh, and I, I kind of went over the idea with him and I said, look, I'm going to say something and I'm going to write something for you for you. And we're going to make this we're going to cut it together, you know, on a video and make it all work. And it really came out great. It was really pretty funny. There was some funny moments. In fact, uh, one, one of the intros that I wrote for Matt Nathanson, uh, who's a good friend of mine. And, um, I wrote, I wrote that and I want to sax cause I know Matt Nathanson has a really good sense of humor and he's a really, he's got a really wacky sense of humor. And so I thought it would be cool if, if sax introduced him. So I wrote, uh, he played a little bit of uh, come on, get higher, you know, Matt, one of Matt's great yeah. songs. And then he, then I wrote, uh, wrote for him to, for Sacks to say, uh, when I, he goes, when I. When I hear Matt Nathanson sing, it makes me want to dance naked in the woods. And, <laughs> and so after the uh, after the show was over, Matt Nathanson got a hold of me. He goes, "Man, he goes, can you send me that video because I gotta have that intro." And I think he posted it
1: on all his uh, sessions. So. Now, to jump back in time a little bit. Uh, sure. You and Darrell Hall had, have created some of the most iconic music in history. But I have to say that. With all that you've done, and I love it all, but Abandoned is my favorite. And I love how you dedicated so much of the book to that album. Why do you think that album and the songs are so good even today? Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I'm
0: with you. I agree. It's my favorite album. There's no doubt about it. Um, it has to do, you know, when you make <clears> a record or you write a song or whatever, a lot of people always say, well, you know, where'd it come from? Where'd you get the inspiration? Whatever. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's a reflection and, a, and a, it's capturing a moment in time. So what I, what I say about the Abandoned luncheonette album, it was the perfect storm of creativity. Um, Daryl and I had made one album with Arif Martin at Atlantic Records. So we kind of got this singer songwriter folky album called Whole Oats, we got that out of our system. We'd gone on the road for the first time, and we were we realized what we needed to do, um, energy-wise and band-wise, to kind of get over live, because we were doing a very acoustic type thing, and we needed we knew we needed to step it up a bit. Then uh, we had written these songs, and it it all starts with a song, as you know, and so we had these songs, and of course we had "She's Gone" and you know the various other songs, and. Um, we had one experience with Arif Martin under our belt, but now we're going in for the second time. We're much more, we're playing better, we're singing better, we're writing better. And then, of course, Arif just surrounded us with the most incredible group of studio musicians in New York City at the time. You know, we had Bernard Purdy on drums, Gordon Edwards on bass, uh, Richard T played a little bit of piano. We had Hugh McCracken played some guitar. guitar. Uh, we had Pancho Morales on, on percussion. Uh, Of course, Arif Martin, the genius string arranger. Uh, And he just surrounded us with these incredible players. And of course, the engineer was Gene Paul, who's Les Paul's son, basically the the
1: godfather of
0: multi-track recording. And so that's why I said it was the perfect storm of creativity. We had the songs, we had the studio, we had the players, we had the the producer. we had everything and it was all there at the same time. And that's why I think that record just, uh, is so unique. And so, um, you know, there's just something about it. That's just very, very magical and special.
1: Now you mentioned him and I was going to ask you about a reef. I mean, he was such a great producer. What was it like working with him and what have you taken from that experience and put into your own producing?
0: Well, I will say that, um, Everything that I experienced and learned and saw while working with Arif Martin back in the early seventies is exactly the way I conduct my recording sessions in Nashville. Um, I, whatever the way he did it, the way he kind of he kind of he, everyone knew who was in charge, but he never he never asserted or lorded himself over anyone. He let the players do what they do best, and his his genius was to pick those players because he knew what they would deliver. And here in Nashville, you know, you've got this inc- incredible embarrassment of riches with these <laughs> incredible musicians. So once you get to know the town and you get to know these players and what what they all do, um, you really it's like. And Vince Gill told me one time he said, you know, um, being a producer in Nashville is like being a director of a movie. You're casting the parts you know you want you sure you, you need a slide guitar player well there's a lot of really good slide guitar players but who's going to be that exact right one to give you the sound that you're looking for at that moment um so that's part of and, and only that that only comes from being in Nashville and learning about the players and stuff but but that's what Arif did and that's what I learned from him um and I learned to uh you know to 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 make sure I got what I wanted but not be too, but stay open-minded enough to let the, the song evolve based on the, the, the talents of the people that you, you put in the room. You can help support this podcast and get some cool merch by visiting tbpcpodcast.com slash store. Choose from a selection of mugs, or one of T-Bone's iconic t-shirts. That website, again, is tbpcpodcast.com slash store.
1: Now, you mentioned slide guitar, and that that makes me think of this next person. I was gonna ask you about him, because you talked about him some in your book, And you've mentioned him in interviews, but I think some people, and especially casual fans, don't know about your involvement with George Harris. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, George and I, uh, we didn't, we got to know each other. Actually, we met through Sir Jackie Stewart, the Mm -hmm. the famous uh, Formula One race driver. Um, And we met at the Long Beach Grand Prix out in the the 70s when I was uh, out in L.A. recording. Daryl and I recorded three albums out there. And it was during that period of time that, that we met uh, and we hung out together. And George was living in L.A. at the time. And um, a little while after that, you know, I went to when I was in London, he invited me to his house, a Friar Park and got to go to Friar Park, which was that's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> it was the most amazing house I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and we never really made music together. We just kind of talked about, about a lot about racing and cars and things like that. Um, and then uh, in seventy, I guess it was seventy-eight, when we were doing the Along the Red Ledge album in L.A., uh, George had just produced the um, the mockumentary, The Ruddles, which was that that um, kind of uh, beetleesque esque uh, Monty Python yeah, movie, it's so uh, funny. You know, sort of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And George was really proud of it, so he invited me and Daryl to come to his house to to see it. To see the movie and uh he was you know he was really really proud of it and and while we were there we said hey you know we said hey we're we're recording you know would you like to play on the album and he was like yeah he goes uh, he was so easy and so chill he said he, but he said i don't want to do anything special he goes i just want to be in the band he goes let me just play on a couple tracks So we said, okay. So when we got there, he brought an acoustic guitar. So we assumed that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, We didn't really ask him. We just said, okay, man, you're going to play acoustic (laughs) guitar. And he played on two or three tracks and spent the day and hung out and had a, I think he enjoyed it. Um, But, you know, it was a kind of an awkward thing to, you know, when you have a Beatle in the studio, you don't want to like say, come on, George, play one of your classic solos on slide guitar, (laughs) right? you know, or, uh, you know, or want to, you know, you know, I didn't want to, I I treated him just like a regular guy, you know, and
1: uh, I think that's what, how he wanted to be treated. Right. Big groups have a wide variety of songs, yet they tend to have a few or, or most of the time more that sound somewhat similar I don't hear that at all when I listen to you guys. Now, was that a conscious choice? Well, I think
0: because we have two songwriters and we have a lot of influences to draw from, styles that we, can, us, us as individuals and together. Um, no, you know, it wasn't a conscious choice. It, we just wrote the songs that we felt like writing, that we, we just wrote the best songs we could, but we never referenced ourselves ever. And I think that's where, you know, people you know, maybe start to copy themselves, you know, when, when there's mm-hmm. pressure from the outside, like from the record company or from management or, or the world, you know, radio might say, Oh, well, you had this big hit. So, you know, we need, we need a rich girl too, or we need yeah. a, you know, man eater too, you know? Um, and there certainly was that subtle pressure, but we stayed, we really didn't listen to anybody. We just did exactly what we wanted to do. Um, in fact, you know, during our entire recording career, Uh, we never allowed the record company or any radio people to even come into the studio. Wow. Um, It wasn't until we were done the record and we actually delivered it. We literally said, here you go. Here's our record. You figure out how to sell it. Our job is to make the music. Your job is to figure out how to sell it. Um, And that's what we did. And so um, I'm very I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a, it is a source of pride to know that, Not one of our, you know, not one of our songs, but even our big hit singles. None of them sound like the other. Not even close.
1: Well, that's even more impressive to me that it wasn't a conscious choice. You just did it. And that's that's even more impressive. That's true. Now, you were involved fairly close together in three of the biggest and I think coolest events in music history. Now, you recorded We Are The World you reopened the Apollo theater and brought up Eddie Kendricks and David Ruffin, and then you did Live Aid. Can you tell us a little bit about what that whirlwind was like? It
0: was, and it was a whirlwind. It was all in a very compressed period of time. I, you probably have the dates. I don't have the dates in front of me, but it was very close together. Um, it was really, at, it kind of put a cap on our 80s success. Um, it was almost a capstone to it. You know, we, um, Daryl and I, when Daryl and I first met, one of the first things we did together was go to New York and go see The Temptations at the Apollo Theater. And uh, we sat in the front row. So playing the Apollo and the, the Apollo had been closed in the in late 80s, mid 80s uh, for, for re- uh, renovation. And when they were reopening, uh, they wanted to do a special event and we were, we were going to open the Apollo uh, after the renovation. So we wanted to make it special and do something unique. Uh, So we we found Eddie and David. David was in the Detroit area, uh, not really doing much. Um, and Eddie was playing holiday inns in Alabama and stuff. Uh and we we found them, we reached out to them and we said, Hey, would you guys come and kind of reprise your temptations, classic temptation thing? And you know, we said, we want the whole thing, we want the black tuxedos and the dance steps, the whole thing, you know. And if anyone has ever never seen that show, it's pretty pretty amazing. Uh, so here, you know, here Daryl and I were on stage with our teenage heroes, doing exactly what you know what we would have only dreamed of doing as as teenagers. Um, and there we were on the you know at the Apollo Theater, the legendary Apollo, and we did the Temptations medley. And when we uh, were set to do Live Aid, we want we of course invited them back to to do it again. And then, of course, we backed Mick Jagger and Tina Turner uh, and closed the show at Live Aid in Philadelphia. So and, but in between that was the We Are the World, which was um, cleverly scheduled for the night of the American Music Awards. And in those days, it wasn't like it is today where there's, you know, 1800 music show music award shows. Right. Um, so pretty much everybody who was anybody in the world of pop music uh, was at the American Music Awards. So Lionel Rucci and, and Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, uh, you know, they basically sent an invitation to everybody and said, look, if you, you know, come on down. And we went to the, um, you know, the the, uh, the Herb Alpert, uh, Jerry Moss uh, a Studios, and that's where it was held, the old Chaplin um, movie lot. And um, we went in there and did it. And that was a, that was a crazy experience. In fact, you can't see it, but on the wall, I've got, the manuscript with all the artists signed that I had all the artists signed, one of my proud possessions. um, And uh, so that was like an incredible night, you know, and and that all happened within the space of a few months. So it was almost like Daryl and I really stopped after that. Yeah, We just said, it was like, like, what more could we do? I mean, we had number one record after number one record. We had, you know, multi-platinum touring the world, touring the world. We had been on the road for, you know, almost 20 years. Um, without ever stopping, really, never, ever stopped. And it was felt like it was time to try something else, you know, and just back off a little bit.
1: Now, this, this next subject, I'm sure you could fill a whole podcast with, so we'll, we'll keep it brief, but T-Bone Walk. That, yeah. I remember meeting him in the studio for A uh, Thousand Miles of Life. Yeah. And uh, I remember he was staring me down and, and he thought he knew me. And then after I talked <laughs> to him and then told him who, who I was, what my name was, I said, today I'm Terry, not T-Bone. Right, and right. He, he insisted on calling me T-Bone. And <laughs> every, every email I got from him after that was always T-Bone, you know, he always said T-Bone, you know. Right. And he was just amazing. And, and he never met a stranger. Everybody he knew was his best friend. Talk to me about him and how important he was to the band.
0: I uh, can't overstate his importance. Um, and I will say that, you know, I've been around my, in my life, I've been around so many incredible musicians, but I will say that he is the best musician I've ever been around, um, hands down, uh, on every level. Uh, he, you know, he, he was obviously his bass playing, you know, he was legendary, but he was an incredible guitar player, great keyboard player. He, he was New York State accordion champion when he was like 12 years old um played zydeco accordion and you name it he could play it um and he was as you said he everyone was his best friend because he was so down to earth and so such a a a great human being he he just exuded this positive energy and i never heard him play a wrong note i don't think i've ever heard i know for a fact that I never heard him play a, ba- a, 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 a mis- make a mistake on bass ever. Wow. Not that I ever heard, um, not live, not in the studio, not ever. And to this day, you know, sometimes when I'm trying to figure out guitar parts and things like that, I'll think, how would he have played this? How would T-Bone have played this? You know, would he have used the capo? Would he have tuned down, you know, tuned his E string down to D? Uh, would he have, um, would he finger, how, what, what, what would he, I think about how he would have approached it. Um, and to me, he was uh, it was the consummate musician, you know, and one of those things, one funny thing about that session, that was my first album in a uh, solo album in Nashville. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was, uh, you know, um, I was with Bill, um, uh, the engineer who we used Vorn Bill Vornick, that's right. And Bill's a real old school Nashville engineer. And I was consulting him like, well, hey, Bill, you know, I don't know the players. Who should we get? You know, and he was making a lot of great suggestions on who, who should play. And he said to me, he said, who's going to play bass? And I said, well, I'm going to bring my bass player T-bone down. He, and Bill Vornick said, he said, I don't know, man. He goes, that might not be a good idea. He goes, these guys, you know, they, they're they pretty, you know, they're amazing players and they don't like to play with people they don't know. I said, don't worry. It'll be fine. And it was really funny because, um, of course they, they loved him and he was amazing. But after a few days, all these bass players started showing up at the studio, you know, Michael Rhodes and Steve Mackey, they're all like coming and just standing behind the, behind the console. And Bill Vornick, the engineer goes, why are all these bass players showing up? I said, they're showing up to see this dude right here because (laughs) because he's a bad, bad mama jamma. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, just one of, the, one of the greats. I can't say enough, enough good things about him.
1: Supporting T-Bone Prime Cuts on the Other Side podcast gives you interesting inside views from the talk space where musicians matter. Go to tbpcpodcast.com and click the donate button. All contributions are much appreciated now you know unless someone is uh seen one of your shows with daryl or better yet, one of your solo shows they might not know how good a guitarist you are now i know you don't give yourself credit for that but you are i knew that you were but when i saw you solo and you pulled out the thumb pick i was like whoa wait a minute (laughs) and and so you know can you tell us about some of the styles and and who some of your heroes were sure
0: uh well you know i'll tell you what i'm gonna you say not many people see the video but i'm gonna tilt this up
1: Yep. see that and guy jerry. right over
0: my shoulder back yeah. there uh-huh. that's that's jerry ricks jerry ricks uh was my guitar teacher mentor and friend uh, in the late 60s in philadelphia jerry was uh, an incredible folk blues guitar player and um i met him uh I got a job teaching guitar lessons when I was a freshman in college, uh, and I was uh, teaching the beginners, and Jerry taught at the same little folk studio, and he was teaching the more advanced uh, people, and um, I got to know him, and I said, I need to take lessons from this guy, and Jerry was, um, he was a a big part of the early folk scene in Philadelphia during the folk revival in in the early 1960s. And he worked at a place called the Second Fret, which was one of the, the, the premier coffee house where all the folkies and blues and traditional players would, would show up. And Jerry would you know, invite them to, to, to his house and they would sleep on his couch and, and Jerry would, would learn from them. You know, and uh, he, became, he became Mississippi John Hurt's kind of tour manager. He would take him around. Wow. So when I met Jerry, um, I, you know, I would come into Jerry to take a guitar lesson and Doc Watson would be there you know, just sitting there and I'd be like, Oh, okay, this is, this is good. <laughs> and uh, so I got to learn from a lot of these, these traditional players, you know, directly from them and from Jerry. Uh, and so my, you know, um, I always think, you know, I was able to finger pick, but he really took me to another level and not only just the, you know, my, my finger picking technique, but, but also just as just musicality, just uh, musicianship. And, um, he played on the first two Hall and Oates albums. And in fact, uh, when Mississippi John Hurt passed away, one of his guitars, the one he played at, um, at Newport folk festival in 63 or 64 was given to Jerry mm-hmm. and Jerry brought that guitar to New York. And that's, uh, I'm playing Mississippi John Hurt's guitar on the first two Hall and Oates albums. Wow. And I actually have that guitar. It's sitting right here in the closet. Um, because it, uh, it Jerry sold it to a guy in Denver in their mid seventies. And, um, the guy had it in his collection for many years and he passed away. And they were going to sell it. And I got wind of it and I bought it. So um, I have the same guitar that I played on the Abandoned Luncheonette album. And um, so that's pretty cool. Uh so yeah, I mean, I I really I was very steeped in the American traditional American music tradition, whether it be Appalachian, bluegrassy, I'm not a very good bluegrass player, but um but folk and blues and ragtime and stuff like that. And I incorporate all that stuff into my plane.
1: Before I read your book, now I and I read it, you know, it's like four years ago, but I had no idea, and I thought I knew you well and knew about you. I didn't know that you were a pilot. <laughs> yeah. And uh the the Lake Erie and icing conditions and wings. Yeah. That was, I mean, even just reading it was scary. Do, do, you know, do you still fly?
0: No, I don't. I mean, on occasion, if I'm in someone, you know, if I go take a private plane and I'm with a friend or something and they, you know, they want they ask me if I want to, sure, I'll fly a little bit, but um, no, I don't fly. I still, you know, I don't have my license. I'm not current. Um, actually, you know, it was when I moved to, I, I was flying when I lived on the East Coast, but when I moved to Colorado, I just didn't have the aircraft that was, it wasn't a smart thing to have a light aircraft in the mountains. And I just knew it was a whole different level of flying. So I, and plus I had a kid and I was building a house and I I really wanted to do other things. I wanted to like kick back and I didn't want to be quite so responsible at this stuff like that. But you're right, that experience uh, with getting icing over Lake Erie was something I'll never forget. And also I I still have kind of nightmares about it. Wow. Um, Every time I think about it, I, I get the shivers. And, you know, I mean, I, that was about as close to dying as I think um, I've ever been. Uh, even a car crash wasn't, wasn't as bad as that. Um, and so it was, um, somebody was looking after me and, you know, I did the right thing and I got the right, and whether it was guidance
1: from above or yeah. guidance from my brain, maybe a combination of both, you know? Yeah. Uh, now, can you tell us something about writing songs for that movie, Gringa?
0: Yeah. Well, we're still worried. We're still trying to get some distribution for the movie Gringa. Uh, you know, this COVID thing has really screwed everything up. Yeah. Uh, it'll probably end up streaming on some one of the streaming platforms. Uh, it's, an, it's a great little movie. Uh, a friend of mine from Aspen, Colorado is the director. And uh, it was during COVID when he reached out to me and um, said, what are you up to? I said, oh, you know, I'm writing some songs, just kind of just hanging out. And uh, he said, do you want it? he said, I'd like to show you a clip of this movie I'm making. And See if you can come up with something. He did. And I sent him something and he and his wife said, wow, this is perfect. It's exactly right for the movie. I said, great. Um, And he said, you want to do more? And I said, well, yeah, I I got a lot of time on my hands. So sure, why not? And I ended up doing four or five songs for the movie. And I got to collaborate with a a gal from Mexico City. And I sang in Spanish on one track, which I would never done. Um, Also collaborated with a young hip hop artist from South Carolina named Servon Campbell who Amy, uh, once again, my wife Amy found on, on Instagram. And he had this track that was kind of quirky and cool, but it wasn't really finished. Uh, it was kind of this idea. And I got with him and I said, man, I, I, I like what you got, but I said, do you want to take it to another level? And we collaborated on, through Instagram and then he came up to Nashville and we finished it. And it turned out to be one of the, I'll tell you a funny story about that song. The song's called "And." Uh, a dnd and it stands for do not disturb um and we did the song and i thought it was completely different than anything i had ever done and i didn't think it was right for the movie but just thought i just thought well you know what the hell i'll i'll send it to the director and see what he says so i sent it to the director and he gets back at me he goes goes, are you shitting me he goes this is unbelievable he goes, I'm going to send you a clip. He sent me because I hadn't seen the whole movie. Right. He sends me this clip. And in the beginning of the movie, the young teenage girl who's living in California, her mother dies in a car accident. And her father is gone. He, he's in Mexico. So the scene is she wakes up in the morning after her mother has died. And she's wearing a T-shirt that says D&D. No big way. <laughs> No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Wow. And, I, and he said, did you know that? I said, of course I didn't know it. I never saw it before. You're just yeah. sending me, he goes, this is too weird. He goes, this is amazing. He goes, we're going to play this right when she wakes up, you know, and, and it's a very weird, you know, and that's not weird. It's very moody and evocative. It's, it's, it's incredible. It turned out to be probably the highlight of the movie. Um, but I, it was just one of those things. I wow. guess it
1: was meant to be you know one thing that uh, i was able to see during my time with you and it's actually started before that but was the renewed popularity of the band and seeing you playing in some like absolutely huge arenas worldwide i mean you're even bigger now than you were years ago i mean wh- what do you attribute that to
0: well i, th- I there's a lot i think there's, there's a bunch of factors that came together um, i think the the rise of the of streaming and the internet um, and the breakdown of the old, old guard music business where um, radio and major labels were basically dictating to people what they were going to hear. Uh, all of a sudden the world opened up and a younger generation could listen to anything they wanted to listen to. Um, I think Daryl's TV show live from Daryl's house had a lot to do with it um, because he was bringing in younger artists uh, and they were playing a lot of old Hall and Oath songs, which they then spread word to their fan base Mm -hmm. i I think the stuff that i was doing in nashville and beyond with uh you know touring with people like donovan frankenreiter and doing the super jam at bonnaroo with jim james and and doing all these uh jam band stuff uh, americana stuff doing all that kind of stuff and i think it all just kept building and building and building. And then, of course, there was the use of You Make My Dreams Come True in the movie 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. And that really was huge. Um, and it just took it just uh, snowballed from there.
1: You know, like I mentioned earlier, I was present for your solo record in Nashville, A Thousand Miles of Life. That kind of led to you forming a bond with some of their best players down there and eventually moving there. You know, what can you tell us about some of the things that you just absolutely love about Nashville.
0: I love the music community. There's no doubt about it. Um, I I love the music community. I love the way they stick up for each other and the way they support each other. And, and I love the fact that there's a, you know, it's not, it's not competitive in in a kind of way that you think of competition, but it's competitive in that, uh, you know, they want, they want other people to succeed because they feel like, if, if other people succeed, you know, they'll be part of that experience and, and they, they're willing to help each other. Um, and, I, and I like the idea that, well, Nashville's changed a lot in the last you know, oh, yeah. 10, 11 years. It's become a bigger city, but I love the small city aspect of it. It, it had all the things that you want in a city without all, a lot of the negatives, although <laughs> starting to change with the influx of thousands and thousands of people and giant buildings going up everywhere. But it's still got a great charm. It's a, a, you know, it's sophisticated, a little more sophisticated than a lot of Southern cities. Um, But it's still got a little, got that thing, that Southern thing. Um, And one of the things that I love about Nashville that I didn't really think about was how centrally located it is just from a geographic standpoint. Um, It's made my touring life so much easier. I can, I can get to the Northeast, uh, the Southeast, uh, the w- Midwest within an hour and a half, two hours, pretty much anywhere I want to go. Wow. Um, and really it just changed my touring made, made things a lot easier. So, um, just so many things to like, uh, you know, like I said, and I'm closer to my son who lives in uh DC area mm-hmm. and, uh, Amy's folks live up in Illinois and they're not too far away. So, um, my father's still in Pennsylvania. He's, he's about to turn 98. In fact, I'm going to see him tomorrow. I'm going to fly up and see him tomorrow. So yeah, you know, a lot of things pointed to kind of, we still love Colorado and we still have our house out there and we're going to be spending time out there as well. So.
1: Well, it really sounds like the music community is a real community. It is. It's a great, it's a great
0: community, great people and, and amazing players.
1: Now, Now, how did, uh, Car collaboration come about? <laughs> it came about
0: because the gal who helps me with my social media didn't want me to mix cars and music together. <laughs> she <laughs> said, "You got to have your own site. You <laughs> got do something separate." She goes, "You got too much wacky stuff going on." Um, and I think she was right. You know, I think it's it's better to have my my Instagram and sites, uh, you know, be a little bit more lifestyle and music musically oriented, and then for the, all the car nuts out there, we can do stuff on car collaboration. Just just basically another outlet
1: towards the end here. What are your future plans if the pandemic allows you to perform again fairly soon? Well, we've whole
0: notes has a tour plan for the first week of August. So we actually, uh, I believe it's going to be officially announced mid-May. So if the world is going to say, if the the green light comes on uh, in mid-May, we're going to have a tour that's going to go uh, start in August. And it really goes through the end of November, beginning of December. Um, so we're going to try to ca- recapture as many cities as we couldn't, you know, as we missed on in the 2020 cancellation. And, uh, we hope we'll have squeeze and KT Tunstall with us again. Uh, that was the package that we went out with. And so we're really excited. I mean, I love squeeze and I love KT Tunstall. So, um, it's a great musical show and hopefully we'll get that. We'll get that done and starting in August. Um, uh, in the meantime, I'm, uh, I'm not really planning on you know I'm, I'm doing a couple little solo guitar things but um it's it's a nice time for me to be able to kick back a little bit and appreciate being home for the first time really in my whole life yeah. my whole adult life it's the first time that i've actually not traveled uh in since 1972 wow so um i didn't know what it was like to be home really seems same sounds crazy to say um, but I kind of like it. So I uh, you know, figured out a way of uh, doing a little bit more.
1: Well, I, I want to thank you for this and, uh, and for allowing me to work for you all those years. And I have to I have to admit, listing me in your book was definitely a highlight for me. So thank oh, you. Good.
0: Well, hey, you, as I said, in the beginning of this conversation, man, you were there at the beginning of my Nashville experience. And uh, you, were, uh, you were always a
1: great supporter and I always appreciate you for that. Thank you. Well, John, you have a good time. We'll see you. Okay, man. T, you take care of yourself. Okay. Bye now. All
0: right. Good to see you, buddy. Bye.
1: I'd like to thank John Oates for all his wonderful time today. And make sure you go to johnoats.com for more information. Also, be sure to go to tbpcpodcast.com and click that donate button. We'll see you next time.